we've been working for the last, believe it or not, 40 weeks now through the book of Revelation. We've finally gotten ourselves to, to really a very, very, very key section in this book. In fact, the longest section in this book. And it begins in Revelation chapter 6, and you can go ahead and be turning there. But this section picks up in Revelation chapter 6, and it, and it continues all the way through to Revelation chapter 19. And this is the section of the book that deals with the tribulation period. Now, if you're, if you're newer to the Bible, and we've got a lot of folks who are uh, with us right now that are, are newer to the Bible. Now, now listen, if, if you're newer to the Bible, it's very important for you, you to understand that the tribulation period is without a doubt the most horrendous period of time that has ever been known in the history of man. And that is not my opinion. That's exactly what Jesus Christ himself said when he walked on this planet. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, Jesus said that it would be a time such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Understand that when we're talking about the tribulation period, what we're talking about is a period of time when this planet is reaping the full harvest of man's sin. In fact, Jesus went on to say in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22 that if he didn't return at the end of the tribulation period, there would be none left alive on this planet. I mean, that's the kind of time that we're talking about. It'll be a time of pain. It'll be a time of, of suffering and torment and tragedy and calamity and disaster like you can't even imagine. The prophet Joel said in Joel chapter 1 and verse 15, it is a day of destruction from the Almighty. In chapter 2 and verse 11 of Joel, Joel said that it will be a great and a very terrible day. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 said, called it the time of Jacob's trouble and described it as a day like none other. The, the psalmist said in Psalm 110 in verse 5, it is the day of God's wrath. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, it is the day of the Lord's anger. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9 that it is a cruel day, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall listen, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Amos said in Amos chapter 5 and verse 16 that it is a day when there will be wailing in the streets. We're not talking about a time where people are, are in their house shedding a few tears. He says it will be a time when there will be wailing in the streets. And you see, we live in a day when, when, it, when it's in vogue to be macho, you know. And everybody wants to act like they're all of that and the tough guy and the stud muffin and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, nobody is going to mess with me and I'm not worried about anybody and I'm not worried about anything. And you hear a lot of those macho type people today poking a whole lot of fun getting a lot of cute little laughs out of people who are warning right now on this planet against that time but let me guarantee you nobody will be laughing then 
no matter how macho, no matter how tough you think you are, Amos said that they will be wailing in the streets. And Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14 says that during this time, the mighty man, the terminology in our day would be the macho man, the mighty man shall cry bitterly. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3, God says through Paul that this time will come as a sudden destruction. And He says that it will be as travail upon a woman with child, listen, and they shall not escape. There comes that, that time of hard labor, ladies, and, and you know, it, it, when that hard labor comes on, it's not like you say, uh, you, you know, Doc, I, you know, I think I've changed my mind about this uh, having a baby thing. You know, it, it's too late then. And Paul says that when, when that time comes to this earth, there's no turning back the hands of time then. There's nobody that's going to be able to say, you know, I, <laughs> uh, I think I changed my mind about, about this whole thing. He says, the sudden destruction shall come and they shall not escape. Jesus said in Luke 23 and verse 30 that people will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us! And to the hills, cover us! And Revelation 9, 6 says, And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And yet, they shall not escape. You know, I want you to listen to me. In light of everything that the Bible talks about, about the very period of time that we are living in, it gives every indication whatsoever to let us know that we are living at the period of time just before this period that I've just described for you through the Word of God. We are living at that time just prior to this period of time coming to this planet. And what is so sad, folks, and sometimes I'm afraid that even as Christians, I'm afraid that sometimes we forget this. But most of the people that are in your family are going to go into the tribulation period. Most of the people that you work with are going to go into the tribulation period. Most of the people in our neighborhoods are going into the tribulation period. In fact, all you got to do is just look around you. Almost every person you see on this planet is going to enter into the tribulation period and, and what is, is probably the most tragic thing of all is that unless something changes, there are people that are in this very room this morning that are listening to this wild-eyed, red-eyed, fanatic preacher putting out this warning and yet you'll choose to go into the tribulation period. And, and I mean, you, you'll remember, you will remember this day very distinctly. I mean, that, I mean it, it is just mind-boggling to me. And, and I, I want you to understand that going into the tribulation period is a choice. Amen? 
I, I thought, boy, we have a bunch of people here that would be feeling the urgency of this right now and say, yeah, man, that, that's right. It, you, you don't have to do that. You, you can leave this place this morning. You can leave this place with the, the confidence and the assurance that you're not going to enter into that period of tribulation. Because, you see, you can choose to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, and you can have the promise of being raptured off of the face of this planet before this event comes to the earth. Now, unless you, you don't understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this thing of the rapture, it's described for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and what it says that is going to happen very, very shortly on this planet is Jesus Christ is going to come back in the clouds. There will be the voice of the archangel. There will be a trumpet that will sound. And all of the people on this planet who have entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, they will be bodily removed off of the face of this planet. People who have already come to know the Lord, who right now their soul and spirit is in the presence of the Lord, their bodies will come literally out of the grave those graves will split wide open and that body will be glorified and all of the people who know God will be removed from this planet and then that that event will usher us into this period of time that we're talking about the tribulation period the seven year tribulation period and for the sequence of these events the rapture and the tribulation to find those here in the book of Revelation, if you look back in chapter 4 and verse 1, what we have here is the rapture. It's the rapture. It's the same exact description that you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Heaven opening, the voice, the trumpet. John, who is a picture of the church, is caught up into the third heaven. And then from that point in chapter 4, the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, it describes what takes place in heaven immediately after the rapture of believers in Jesus Christ. And then when we come to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, it begins to describe for us what takes place on the earth immediately after the rapture, namely the tribulation period. Or as we saw last week, that, that final seven years that remain from Daniel's vision that he had back in Daniel chapter 9, what we call Daniel's 70th week, that, that final week of years. Now, maybe there's somebody that's here this morning and you're listening to, as I've gone through the prophets and they're describing all of this thing and the, this horrendous period of time on this planet, maybe some of you are saying, now, why in the, why in the world is this tribulation coming? Why is there going to be this, this judgment of the earth? There, there's three basic reasons. First of all, it's coming to fulfill prophecy. Since God prophesied the week of years that we just talked about in Daniel chapter 9, in order for the Bible to be the Bible and in order for God to be God, that seven years has to come to pass exactly like all of the other 10,360 prophecies in the rest of the Bible. It's got to come to pass exactly the way that God said that it would. So, First of all, it has to happen simply to fulfill prophecy, but even more than that, to fulfill the reason in God giving the prophecy, and that is to finally annul the authority of Satan 
who usurped control of the earth from Adam. And we've gone back and we've seen how the Bible says very dogmatically that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That is, He holds the title deed of the earth. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God created Adam from the dust of the earth, He made a copy of that title deed and He gave Adam dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. But when Adam sinned, he lost his copy of the title deed, and it went into the possession of Satan. And in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, after man's redemption has been completed and the church has assembled around the throne of God and glorified bodies, what God does in chapter 5 and verse 1 is he pulls out that original title deed. That's the book in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. That book that had been sealed with seven seals and he is pulling out that book to announce that it was time for the Lamb. The time for the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, to finally take back possession of the earth from Satan. And that's exactly what happens as the Lord Jesus Christ takes that book, which is the title deed of the earth, and begins to open the seals of it in Revelation chapter 6. And then there's a third reason that the tribulation period is coming to this earth, and that is to judge all those on the earth who oppose God and His gospel in preparation for the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And you see, that's why after the seventh seal is opened, Revelation 11.15 says that the kingdoms of this world have become or will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 says that when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, that the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Listen, He comes in flaming fire back to this planet, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Again, that's why as we come to Revelation chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is opening the seven seals of the book. He's doing it to initiate the beginning of the tribulation period to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week to annul Satan's authority over the earth and to prepare the earth for his millennial kingdom. And what we find in Revelation chapter 6 is that as the first four seals of this book are opened, it reveals the infamous four horsemen of Revelation, what some people call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And and let's look at the opening this first seal in verse 1. John says, And I saw when the Lamb... And who's the Lamb? It's Jesus Christ. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Now, this is the first seal. He says, And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. Now, have you ever been outside on a, on a summer's day and, and where you are, I mean, the, the sun's just shining big time, you know? And then all of a sudden, you hear this rumble of thunder, and you turn around, and and man, right back behind you, there are these, you know, 
big black clouds that have gathered there, and you start see, seeing that this storm is, is moving in. And in, in that same exact way, John hears, hears thunder because the storm of God's judgment is moving in on the earth. And, and the thunder, in verse 1, is the roar of the voice of one of the four beasts. And, and you'll remember, you can look back in chapter 4, Chapter 4, and the end of verse 6, we were introduced to these four beasts. John identifies them in, in verse 7, and verse 7 says that the first beast was like a, a what? Like a, a lion. And so you see, it's no wonder in chapter 6 and, and verse 1, when he hears the voice of the first beast, he says it was like thunder. It, it roared. And what the first beast said to John was come and see and so what's getting ready to happen here is God as he is giving the revelation of Jesus Christ to John what God is doing here is he is allowing John to see the beginning of the tribulation period on the earth the beast says come and see and John says in in verse 2 and I saw And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, you need to understand something about that that verse that we just read there. The rider of this horse is probably the most controversial figure in the entire Bible. You'll notice here, look at at verse 2 again. You'll notice that the rider is on a white horse. And and because of that, there are many people who just automatically and immediately cross-reference this verse to Revelation 19.11 where you find somebody else who is riding on a a white horse. In fact, if you have cross-references in your Bible, how many of you have cross-references there? Okay, most of you. Check it out there, next to verse 6. Does your Bible cross-reference you to Revelation 19.11? How many of you it does? Okay, almost everyone that has a cross-reference Bible. Okay, now turn over to Revelation 19 for just a second. Because when you get to Revelation 19, the identity of, of the writer... In Revelation 19, that's on this white horse, is not real tough to to figure out. Look with me at verse 11, Revelation 19. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, here it is, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, And he had the name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. If you're wondering who this is, 
This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, I mean, you just see it right there. He, he's riding on a white horse. And, and you know, go back to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. My goodness, here's this guy. And he's, he's riding a white horse. And, and listen, in the name of comparing Scripture with Scripture, many people believe that Revelation 6.2 is a reference to Christ. But, but if you genuinely compare Scripture with Scripture, what you find is, is that other than the fact that they're both riding white horses, there's not another common characteristic that they have. The, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6.2 has a bow. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 has a sword. I'd say that was a difference, wouldn't you? The rider on the white horse in Revelation 6.2 is wearing a single crown. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 is wearing, what, many crowns. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 6.2 is followed by death, hell, and famine. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 is followed by the armies of God. I mean, hey... It's pretty obvious we're talking about two different people here. But now listen, in spite of that, now listen, I'm not talking about the fact that there's there's a few people on the planet who get messed up on this thing. Now listen to me. I want to make sure you understand this. The majority of the people on this planet who, in any way, shape, or form, right, wrong, indifferent, whatever, the people who are on this planet, the vast majority of them, and I'm talking the largest denominations in the world, the largest seminaries, the one that you and I might consider to be fundamental and conservative or whatever, the Bible colleges, the largest churches, they take the position that Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 is a reference to Christ. And I'm talking about Baptists. I'm talking Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Church of God, Assemblies of God the Lutherans, the Roman Catholics, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, the, even the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the teaching here is that positionally, what they do is they come to verse 2 and they say that positionally, Jesus has already taken His crown over the earth and that right now, in this dispensation, He is busy conquering. And you see, what that means is that the kingdom is gradually spreading as Christ conquers this earth. And what this teaching is called is... Anybody know the doctrinal title for this? It's post-millennialism. Okay? It's a big, hairy word, which is the teaching that when we finally get everything straightened out on this planet, and, and we've allowed you know the social injustices of the world to be stamped out and and we've allowed civil rights to flourish, and, and we've stamped out hunger, and we've stamped out poverty, and there's peace on earth, and there's goodwill toward men, and that's flourishing on this planet, then Jesus will come back to this earth, and He will rule in His kingdom. And you see, if you buy into this teaching, which, like I said, every one of the major denominations and cults that I just mentioned just a minute ago, they all teach this. And if you buy into this teaching, then what that really means then is that our job is to do whatever is necessary to bring that kingdom in. And, and, and folks, listen. This is not some minor little doctrinal error. 
that we're talking about here. Do you realize that the misidentity of this writer in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 has been the result of countless wars through the last 16 to 17 centuries? I'm talking a misidentity of the writer in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. Now, I don't mean to be offensive to anybody in this room this morning, but I want you to understand that this teaching that we're talking about and the misidentity of this writer was what was behind the crusades of the Roman Catholic Church through the Dark Ages. You see, now this is how it comes down. They, they adopted Peter as their first pope. And you remember in, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter, the first pope, was given the keys to what? Hello? Given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. And anybody who knows anything about their Bible knows that the kingdom of heaven is a literal, political, governmental kingdom on the earth. And since Peter was given those keys, and since he was there for his pope, the Roman Catholic Church has felt that through the centuries, what their job has been on this planet is to prepare the earth to receive her king. You see, and if that means wiping out the Jews, because, you know, they, they killed the Lord in the first place. And those Muslims, well, well they're following Allah. And those Bible believers, you know what? They don't line up with what we believe. And so you see, in the name of God, they were justified because, you see, their job is to stamp out all of this evil in the world. And it was that justification that they used. Check it out in any history book that you want to on this planet. That was the justification that they used to kill and butcher and martyr over 50 million people through the Dark Ages and on into the Inquisition. And again, you can go check it out. It was all done under the slogan, God wills it. And listen, it wasn't just the Roman Catholic Church either. Did you know that the civil war that we fought in our own country was fought over this very issue? Well, I thought it was slavery. Yeah, we're going to stamp out slavery because that's an injustice that we can't have on this planet. And you see, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And He's going to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know what that song is all about, y'all? Misinterpretation of Revelation 6-2. His truth is marching on. You know, it's a great hymn of, you know, of, of America. No, it's not. It's a false teaching. That we're going to bring this kingdom in, and His truth is going to march on. And buddy, if you get in our way, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to just blow your head off because we've got to get this world ready for Jesus Christ to set up His kingdom on the earth. You say, well, man, if the writer in Revelation 6-2 isn't the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then who is it? 
Now, now listen. There's only one man in the Bible who is so much like Christ that he could fool people into thinking that he is Christ. And, and who is that? Satan's masterpiece, the Antichrist. And listen, if you're really going to understand him biblically, you've got to be aware of the, the teaching concerning the Antichrist that's found just a couple of pages away to your left there in your Bibles in 1 John chapter 2. And I want you to turn over there, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And look what the, the same Apostle John says, or the same one that wrote the, the Revelation. Look at what he says in verse 18. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Okay, And what he's talking about here is the Antichrist. It, it's the same Antichrist that we hear that is going to come. But look at what he says. Even now... Are there many antichrists? And you see, as we make our way through the Bible, what we find is that God has allowed us to understand what He means by that by giving us 18 major types of antichrist in the Bible. And we're going to work our way through these, and as we begin to do it, I think you're going to see what I mean. Now, the first picture or type of antichrist in the Bible, can you think of who he might be? It's Cain, right? Cain. And watch this now. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 says of him, Cain, who was of that wicked one. I mean, you know, I mean, you're just reading along, and that's hard to miss. He was of that wicked one. John chapter 8 and verse 44 says of the devil that he was a murderer from the beginning. And, of course, the first murder on the face of this planet that took place in the beginning was committed by whom? By Cain, right? And, see, Jesus lets us know in John 8, 44, he, he lets us know what power it was that was actually working behind the act. And you know what? If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, what you find is that Cain is a picture of the Antichrist persecuting Abel, a type of Israel because of Abel's quote-unquote religion. In Genesis chapter 4, and verse 15, the Lord set a mark upon Cain. And if you check out Revelation chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, you know what you'll find? That there's a mark that is connected with the Antichrist. And that's just real coincidental the way that works out, isn't it? The second one is a guy by the name of Nimrod. He is the 13th in line from Adam. His name means rebel or rebellious one. And when he shows up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10, he's setting himself up as a king over a kingdom in rebellion against God, a kingdom that is called Babylon. And in Genesis chapter 11... In an attempt to establish a world empire, Nimrod unifies the people both politically and religiously as they say, let us build us a city and 
a tower, and the city represented the governmental or political aspect of the kingdom. The tower, of course, represented the religious aspect. And I mean, you just go right down through the line, and what you'll find is Nimrod is a perfect description of everything the Antichrist is and everything the Antichrist will do. Again, it's just a coincidental thing the way that all of these things work out in the Bible. The third one is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king over Egypt, which is always a picture of the world in the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 12, Pharaoh persecutes the nation of Israel, just like the, the, the king of the world will do during the tribulation period. And, and do you remember who it was that preached to Noah back in, in the Old Testament? Who was it? It was Moses. And guess who shows up again in Revelation chapter 11 to preach to the Antichrist during the tribulation? It's Moses. The fourth one is Balak. And he is the Moabite king in Numbers chapter 22 to 25 who caused Israel to stumble. And you see, there's a very interesting connection between Revelation 16, 13... And Numbers 22 and verse 41. Now follow this carefully and quickly. In Revelation 16, 13, what it does, it identifies for us the satanic trinity. The dragon, which is Satan the father. The beast, which is Satan the son. And the false prophet, which is Satan, the unclean, or the unholy spirit. And you know what you've got in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 41? Now, now listen to the verse, just listen. It says, And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal, that thence he might see the utmost of the people. And it's a picture of the unholy trinity in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 13. Baal is the false god. He's a picture of the dragon. Balak is the false king. He's a picture of the beast or the antichrist. And Balaam is the false prophet. He's a picture of the false prophet in Revelation 16 and verse 13. Again, Interesting how that lines up. Number five, a guy by the name of Sisera. We've been studying the book of Judges on Sunday night. We saw him in Judges chapter 4 and 5. Judges chapter 4 and verse 3 says, He mightily oppressed the children of Israel. You see over there in Judges chapter 5, verses 19 and, and, and 20, you know how he's defeated? Or know where he's defeated? He's defeated, do you remember this from our study? He's defeated in Megiddo. You know where the Antichrist is defeated? In Megiddo. Revelation 16, 16. There it's called Armageddon. Same exact place. And you know how Sisera dies? He dies by a head wound. Just like the Antichrist in Revelation 13. The sixth one is Abimelech. He shows up in Judges chapter 9. He's a rebel against God. He's a follower of Baal. He sets himself up as the sole king, you know, reasoning the fact that, that more could be accomplished in the kingdom if just one person was calling the shots. 
and he rises to power. And just what happens to the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3 happens to Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 and verse 53. He receives a deadly head wound. Number seven is Goliath. And of course, he also comes against the nation of Israel. And he's likened to a lion and a bear in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 36, just like the Antichrist is in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 2. And who is it that delivers Israel out of the hand of this demonic giant? David. And of course, David is a type of Christ in the Bible. And how does David defeat him? They meet, strangely enough, down in a valley. And David hits him in the head with a stone. But is that how he died? No. He then takes out a sword and he destroys him. And listen, that's exactly the way Revelation 19 says Christ comes and defeats the Antichrist with the sharp sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And that sword is what? The Word of God. Number eight is Saul. Just as the nation of Israel chose wicked King Saul to be their king, to rule them over before Israel got God's choice for, for their king. Remember, God wanted a man after his own heart, a man that, that he would choose. And that, of course, was, was David. Again, a picture of Christ in the Bible. And in that same way, you know what the nation of Israel is going to do? During the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to be their king. He'll be who they'll choose and then all of a sudden, their eyes will be opened, and then they will turn to the real king. David was God's choice. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Saul was a prophet, and obviously a king. And in 1 Samuel 13, you know what he does? He tries to usurp the priesthood. And it's the same exact thing that the Antichrist is going to do in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. You know what he does? He comes to the, into the temple and he tries to play God. Same exact thing that's pictured back, back there. And by the end of, of Saul's reign in 1 Samuel 28, you know what happens to him? He's possessed by an evil spirit, just like the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. Number nine is Nabal. He shows up in 1 Samuel 25, and he's a, a rebel against David, a type of Christ. And in 1 Samuel 25, 17, he's called the son of Belial, which is the word that 2 Corinthians six fifteen uses to refer to Satan. And in verse 48 of that same chapter, 1 Samuel 25, it says, the Lord smote Nabal, just like the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do to the Antichrist. And then after Nabal's death, David takes Nabal's beautiful wife to be his wife. Next is Absalom. His name comes from two Hebrew words, Ab or Ab, which means father, as in Abba, father. And Shalom, Absalom, Shalom, which means what? Peace. He is the father of peace. And we'll talk more about this in just a few minutes, but that's what we see in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. He comes in as the father of peace. Absalom, of course, is a rebel against David, a type of Christ. And you know what happens? He, he rises up against David. He takes a third of 
David's men with him in rebellion. And in 2 Samuel 18, 18, 6 plus 6 plus 6, he dies and he goes to his own place, just like it says the son of perdition did in Acts chapter 1 and verse 25. And 2 Samuel 18, 17 tells you that it was a pit, which according to Revelation 17 and verse 8, is exactly where the son of perdition was cast into a pit. Next is, is Solomon. He is probably the most unique guy in the entire Bible. He is the only person in the Bible who is both a, a, a type of Christ and a type of Antichrist. In 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon is the most beautiful picture in the Bible of Christ ruling and reigning in his millennial kingdom. He is the king, he is the son of David, and the Gentile kings of this world are bowing their knee to the king of Jerusalem to hear his wisdom, and they come bearing gifts. That's 1 Kings chapter 10. By 1 Kings chapter 11, he begins to picture the Antichrist. 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 13 gives you just a little hint. It says that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 600, three score, and six. Six, six, six. And like Daniel chapter 11 and verse 20 says that the Antichrist will do what Solomon did is he raises heavy taxes upon Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 9. Number 12 is Jeroboam. And he comes to power right after the death of Solomon in, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and 13. Now, when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. And Jeroboam was the first king of the northern tribes of Israel. And he leads Israel into rebellion. And what he does is he sets up an image for Israel to worship just like the Antichrist does in Revelation chapter 13. Number 13 is Ahab. And according to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 13, he was the most evil king that Israel ever had. He's married to Jezebel. Now, now listen real carefully to this. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, it defines Jezebel not just as a historic lady who lived in the past. It defines Jezebel as a religious system. It's very important that you see that. And when you go back and you check it out in 1 Kings and Judges chapter 17 and 18, you find that it is a religious system. And I'm just telling you the way that it's laid out there. It is a religious system that uses black-robed priests who are called Father, who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And you go over to Revelation 17 and verse 3, and listen, that woman Jezebel is sitting on the beast. Who is the beast? He's the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And this woman Jezebel, this religious system, is riding on the back of the beast. You know who she is? 
She is the one world religion that the Antichrist is going to use to pull the world together religiously during the tribulation period. The religious system that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. Ding, 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 ding. And you see, what is so wild right now on this planet is that we've got people who claim to be fundamentalists who are seeking to do everything that they can to lead the way to pull the, the world together into that same Jezebel system, and it's happening right before our very eyes like we don't have a book. Amazing thing. Number 14 is Sennacherib. I like that name, Sennacherib. But you got to pronounce it Sennacherib, you know? you got to get that sh in there. He's the wicked king of Assyria who comes to fight against Judah from the north. His name is found 13 times in the Bible. The name, the Assyrian. You'll see this as you work your way through the Word of God. It's a term that's used in the Old Testament to refer to the Antichrist, and it too, the Assyrian, is found 13 times in the Bible. Next, number 15, is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he's the king of Babylon who captured Jerusalem and took Judah into captivity. In Jeremiah 51, verse 34, he is called a dragon, which Revelation 13, 4 is the power source of the Antichrist. And Revelation 12, 9, of course, tells you who the dragon is. Who is it? It's Satan and the devil. Like the Antichrist in, in Revelation 13, Nebuchadnezzar erects an image to himself for people to worship him and Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1 says that it was three score cubits high and the breadth was six cubits. Check it out. Sixty times six times six. The next one, number 16, is Haman. And he's the wicked king that you find persecuting the Jews in the book of Esther. And because of his hatred for one individual, a man by the name of Mordecai, he seeks to wipe out the entire Jewish race. Which, of course, is exactly what Satan desires to do through the Antichrist because of his hatred for one individual. Not Mordecai, the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther says of him in Esther chapter 7 and verse 6, listen to this. The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Okay, Esther, we'll take your word for it. You know what? It's hard to miss pictures like that when God spells them out for you that clearly. The adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. Look at Haman and you'll understand about the adversary and your enemy. Number 17 is Herod. In Luke chapter 2, Herod is the Roman king in power at the first coming of Christ. The Antichrist, of course, will be the Roman king in that revived Roman empire that Daniel talked about. The Antichrist will be the Roman king at the second coming of Christ. He, he, you remember that Herod tried to have Jesus killed by, by wiping out the royal line. And you see that same thing in Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. You remember, Herod beheads John the Baptist. Who Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 3 
would have been Elijah. You remember this? He said John the Baptist would have been Elijah had the nation of Israel received the Messiah. And check it out. The Antichrist will do the same thing to Elijah when he shows up again on this planet during the tribulation period. He's going to chop his head off. Again, I mean, you know, I, I stayed up real late last night trying to make all these things fit. And then number 18. That's why my eyes look like this. It's not really cold in there. Number 18. The last major type of Antichrist in the Bible, of course, is Judas. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 refers to Antichrist as the son of perdition. And listen, there's only one other person in the entire Bible that's ever given that title. You see, again, it's hard to miss that connection. And Jesus is the one who makes it in John chapter 17 and verse 12 where he refers to Judas as the son of perdition. Now you see Revelation or 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The Antichrist is the son of perdition. Jesus looks at Judas and calls him the son of perdition. And listen, beginning in John 6, 6, 6, I mean, John 6, 66 through verse 70, Jesus explains that Judas was a devil. In John 13, 27, Satan himself actually enters into Judas's body. And again, that's not said of any other person in the Bible. That is, until Revelation 13, 4, when it says that Satan enters into the body of the Antichrist. And when Judas goes out and kills himself, Acts chapter 1, verse 25 says that he went to his own place. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7, it says that the beast, the Antichrist, ascends out of the bottomless pit, which Revelation 17, 8 identifies as perdition. Again, that's a picture that is just real hard to miss. But those are the, the major types of the Antichrist in the Bible. And, and then you, you've got some minor types. I mean, you've got a guy by the name of Adonikam back in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13, whose name means the Lord who will arise and his descendants number 666. And then there's others. But then you've got types of Antichrist after the Bible was finished. I mean, we can go back and based on all of the things that we see that are characteristic of the Antichrist and of the types of Antichrist that God spelled out for us in the Bible, we can go back and we can look through history and see these same exact characteristics, the same exact way that they come to power, the same exact way that they utilize their power. We can see that thing unfolding through history. Number one, there was the Roman Julius Caesar. Number two was the Roman Catholic Constantine. Number three the Roman Catholic Charlemagne. Number four, the Roman Catholic Napoleon. And again, you can just go back and just look at exactly everything that, that came together with their kingdom. What you find is just like the Antichrist. And then number five, you know who he is? The Roman Catholic Hitler. 
And most of you are somewhat familiar with him, but something that I think is worth noting, that in the work by John Tolan, Hitler is, is photographed as a member of the Nazi party in Austria before he went to Munich. And you know what the number on his card reads? Five, five, five. And he is the last major type of Antichrist before the next one gets here who will be the genuine item, the Roman Catholic, son of perdition, the Antichrist himself. And Revelation 13, 18 says that his number is 600, three score, and six. Six, six, six. And he'll do his thing for a short period of time until the real Christ shows up, and his number is seven, seven. We go back to Revelation chapter 6 for a minute and let's see what it was that John saw and how he specifically identified him here in this passage. Verse 2 says, And I saw and behold a white horse. In the the ancient world, a white horse stood for conquest. When when a king would gain a a victory over a, a newly conquered kingdom, He would always make his entrance into that kingdom on a white horse, victorious, conquest. Verse 2 goes on, And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And the implication here is that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he doesn't take power by force. He comes and he takes power by peace. You see, there's there's a bow, but significantly, there are no arrows. And you see, people aren't killed by bows. They're killed by arrows, and he, he, he comes, and as he rises to power, he, he comes in as an emissary of peace. And John says that he went forth conquering and to conquer. He peacefully moves throughout the world dazzling the people until evidently the whole world will claim Him as their sovereign. And that's exactly what Revelation teaches. The whole world is going to follow this guy. And what you see that is spelled out for us here in verse 2, what we find is that this is something that lines up with everything the Bible teaches about Him. And let me take you back for just a minute to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now, as chapter 8 begins, in verse 1, Daniel has a a vision. And he begins to explain what what he saw in the vision in in verse 2. And if you'll just scroll down there, what you'll see is he continues down explaining what he saw in this vision down through verse 14. Then in verse 15, he begins to seek for the meaning of this this vision. In verse 16, God sends Gabriel to help him to understand it. And God lets him know through Gabriel in verse 17 and verse 19 that the vision has to do with the end. And he begins to reveal the meaning of all of the things that he saw in the vision. And and look in the middle of verse 23, because in the middle of verse 23, he begins to explain to him about the rise of this person that we've been talking about this morning. 
he begins to tell him about the rise of the Antichrist. And he says in the middle of verse 23, a king of fierce countenance and the ability to understand dark sentences. And we've talked about dark sentences in the Bible. That's a, that's a phrase that we find throughout the Old Testament. And it's talking about the, what, what is the, the real meaning, the double meanings in Scripture. A lot of the things that we've talked about here th- this morning. And you see, what we see when the Antichrist comes on the scene, just like Satan has always done, folks, Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to be quoting the Bible. And he'll use it and he'll explain it, but he's going to use it and explain it for his own purposes. Verse 24 talks about the tremendous power that he'll have that is fueled by Satan himself. And verse 25 says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He'll turn all of the Scripture around for his own craftiness. And watch this phrase. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. Now, for those of you who have been around the block a few times in the Bible, does that sound familiar to you at all? Does it sound at all like Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where when Lucifer fell from heaven, it says, For thou hast said in thine what? In thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And just like He did then, He will do in the person of the Antichrist. Verse 25 says, He shall magnify Himself in His heart. And watch this next part. And by peace, shall destroy many. I mean, this is going to be the guy coming in with the peace treaty from hell. By peace, he will destroy many. Turn over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. And look at the end of verse 21. But he shall come in. You want to know how he's going to come in? Here it is. He'll come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Not by force. By flatteries. And knowing the right thing to say at the right time. A smoothie. Come through peace. Look at verse 24. He shall enter... Okay, wait. when you look for the Antichrist to come on the scene, he's going to enter... How? Peaceably. And I think if we could do this for just a a minute, I think we could all begin to understand this if we would get it out of the abstract and into the practical for just just a minute. And I think about this. With what you know about the world today, I want you to begin to imagine with me what it's going to be like when the rapture of the church takes place. Because, you see, the, the Antichrist is going to come in, as verse 21 says, or he will enter... The, the scene is verse 24 says at that point okay so now, now get a get a picture of this in your mind imagine that that sometime in the middle of the day tomorrow that event that Paul explained in first Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 comes to pass and the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the clouds and with the shout and the voice of the uh, the archangel and the trump of God and Jesus cries out to his followers to come up hither 
And all of the graves of all of his followers who have died split wide open. Every person on this planet who has entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they are snatched off of the face of this planet. Now listen, folks, do you understand the magnitude of that event on this planet? I mean, just stop for a second and begin to think about how many people are going to be affected by this event. Do you realize that there are now more than 100 million people in Africa alone who claim to be born again? There are over 80 million people in red China this morning who claim to be born again, and that number continues to escalate in red China. There's 50 million people in the United States who claim to be born again, and I don't believe that because what the Scripture says is that there is a group of people on this planet who profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable and disobedient unto, and unto every good work reprobate. And that's not characteristic of somebody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's just, I have a hard time believing that one out of five people in, this, in our country are born again. But nonetheless, there are an incredible amount of people all over this planet who know the Lord Jesus Christ. The estimate, again, is that there are 1.7 billion people who profess not to believe in God or to have adopted a religion, but profess that they have entered into a born-again relationship with God. But let's just say that close to half of them really don't. Okay, So let's just bring it down to where we're talking about just a, a, a billion people. Okay, now, now listen, can you understand the devastation of 1 billion people just vanishing off of the face of this earth? A billion of them? I mean, listen, everybody on this planet in some way, shape, or form is going to be touched by that event. Because you see, that one billion people, when that event takes place, that one billion people is going to be somewhere. You see? And hundreds of millions of people are going to be eyewitnesses of people disappearing before their very eyes. And I mean, can you imagine how freaked out those people are going to be? I mean, just absolutely blown away. People will be in grocery stores and malls and ball games and at work and in airplanes and cars and just all of a sudden, man, they're not going to be there. And listen, not all of the people that are in those cars and in those planes are going to be passengers. Some of them are going to be pilots and engineers and bus drivers and people who are driving their cars. And listen, when that event takes place, there's going to be all kinds of catastrophes that are going to take place on this planet. And can you imagine how long it is going to take to get the wreck and the debris cleaned up and to make matters even worse? Many, many of the people who, that's their job to, to work in those kind of areas, they're gone. And, and here's people all over this world who have got major injuries to themselves and the people who are supposed to take care of them, the doctors and the nurses, many of them aren't there because they've been raptured too and the hospital staff and all of that. And you know what? We, we haven't even calculated into this that if you, if you give room in Christ's atonement for, for babies and for little children who have not yet reached the age of accountability when the rapture comes, I mean, my goodness, you talk about freaked out, parents. Wow, that, that's incredible. And you talk about the number of people escalating, man. And you see, th these are things that we, we don't often allow ourselves to think about. But listen, what we're talking about here, this is going to be one incredible nightmare i mean like some science fiction movie but you can't turn it off and i mean you can't shake yourself and you can't wake up it won't go away 
Insurance companies are going absolutely berserk because they've got all these claims and credit card companies and banks are trying to figure out who's still around to, to pay the bills and everyone knows that they can't figure out who's around or not so they're not paying their bills and, and businesses are, are going out of business and people in, in key places of business are gone. The, the laborers, are, are many of them are gone and, and, and some of those that are still around, I mean, it's not like you know this happens and you go through all of the calamity of this and you're just back at work the next day, everything's just fine. Listen, I mean, people are going to be just absolutely overcome with grief and the whereabouts of their loved ones and their neighbors and their co-workers and their friends and their babies and their little children and people don't know what happened to them. And the news is making all kinds of speculations that maybe UFOs and you know some kind of intergalactic invasion has taken place and others are talking about the fact that we've entered into another dimension and everybody's got their opinion but they're just they're filled with grief and people are paranoid and they don't know why it happened and they don't know if something took place that caused this to happen and they don't know when or if this is going to happen again and man the world is going to be in desperate need for somebody to come in and make some sense out of all of this and stabilize the people emotionally and financially and politically and spiritually. And I mean, we haven't even talked about the, the crisis that will be going on in the, the Middle East, the crisis that's right now going on in, in, the, middle cre- in the, the, the Middle East. And, and man, at this point, things over in the Middle East are going to be about to the point to where they're going to explode and nobody knows what to do. I mean, the world is just in absolute desperation. And, and just at that time, somebody rises up. It has got what sounds like some real bona fide answers. And you know what? I saw him. Did you see him? Man, he's almost like he's almost like a savior. In fact, that's what he claims to be. And you know, it must be true. Because did, did you see the supernatural power that he had? I mean, he, he, did you see the miracles? And Second Thessalonians talks about his tremendous powers and signs and lying wonders. And Paul calls them lying wonders, not because they didn't really happen. No, they really happened. But what it caused the people to do is believe his lie. To believe who he is. And over the last several decades, in the name of Christianity, Satan's just been priming the pump to get everybody on the planet to believe in those things anyway. There's going to be a lot of folks believing in him. And buddy, he's got economic answers. And he's he's got a great following. He, he unites the ten European nations together, and he'll have answers for where everyone went, and he's got uh, the solution for how this won't happen to you and how you won't be removed. He'll tell them how to get food. And listen, it's all going to be real believable because he is he's smooth. And he's, I mean, he's so kind. Now remember... The Bible says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And listen, he's been watching the Lord Jesus Christ since eternity past. Buddy, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's doing his absolute best at this point to imitate him. 
that he's watched Jesus operate before. And so, buddy, if you were to see Jesus Christ and the Antichrist standing next to each other, you'd have a hard time telling them apart. But he doesn't take power by force. He does it by peace, by saying all the right things, by doing all the right things. And, and listen, with all the turmoil that will be going on in the world, and with all the terror, and with all of his so-called answers, it, it'll be enough to unite every faction of people on earth who are at war or in conflict with each other, all of the conflicts between the Hindus and Muslims in India, the Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, the Arabs and the Jews and Israel. I mean, all of it. Listen, in light of everything that has gone on, none of that stuff is going to matter anymore. We've got to pull together, buddy. And you see, at that point, everything in life that seems so important right now, after that event has taken place, folks, none of it is going to matter. None of it. The, the rapture and all the ramifications of it that we're talking about as the Antichrist appears on the scene will be that one event that will unite the entire world, all of the people of the world, all of the churches of the world, and all of the governments of the world. It's all going to happen. I mean, you can, come on, tell me you can't see how that's going to happen with the earth and the condition that it's in right now. And he'll come in and he's going to have peace. And that peace is going to last for a little while. When he finally got everybody all settled down, Scripture says, and we're not going to take the time to go into it right now, but Scripture says that he comes in to the temple. You see, he's allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple and to begin to do their sacrifices because of it. He comes into their very temple, the temple where Jesus Christ will come at his second coming and rule and reign the world from. He comes in the middle of the tribulation period and he takes his seat there it's called the abomination of desolation. Daniel talked about Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. And he says, listen, when that happens, watch out. Watch out. Because that is when the world would enter, enter into great tribulation that has not been since the beginning of time, nor will ever be. I mean, all hell absolutely breaks loose on this planet. And you know what's sad? It's sad that it's this late, but you know what's really sad, folks? Is that somehow man has a hard time listening to the warnings of the Bible. Now, now, now listen, some of you, I, I don't, you know, I, it's hard for me to disconnect enough to know exactly where some of you that are here that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's hard for me to, to know how to get into your head and, and just figure out what, what all you're thinking right now. But I, I do want you, to, I want you to think about this. If you could just, you know, if you're ticked off at me or whatever it is right now, if you could just unplug for just a second enough to hear this. Historically, man has a real hard time listening to the warnings of God. There was an old geezer way back when, 
we started talking about the fact that it's going to rain, y'all. <laughs> People laughing, carrying on. Rain? It ain't ever rained yet. What are you talking about? Rain. It's going to rain, and the only people who are in this ark are going to be able to make it. And you know what? The warning went out to all the world. You know how many got in the boat? Eight. It happened just like Noah said that it would. God warned of a judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know how many were saved in Sodom and Gomorrah? One. One. Jesus warned of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You know what? They didn't believe him and they got wiped out. See what I'm saying? Man just has a hard time with warnings for some strange reason. And for some strange reason, God brought you to this room today to give you as clear a warning as you, you might ever get in your entire lifetime about a judgment that's getting ready to come to this planet. And he's already pointed to you the way of escape. And you know what? It can happen for you today. It, it can happen for you today. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have, remember, the tribulation is a choice. What, what choice are you going to make today in light of everything that God has tried to show you from this book? Let's bow our heads for just a moment. realize that the, the hour is somewhat late right now, but shame on us folks if we can come to a point like this and not give people in this room the opportunity to listen to the voice of God as he speaks to their hearts. And oh God, right now I'm praying that you will take the human element out of this whole thing. And right now, by your Holy Spirit, you would take your truth to the hearts of people in this room. Lord, I, I pray that there would be some Noahs in this room and some Lots some people who believe you. Some people who heed the warning that you are so graphically spelling out through your book. Oh God, even now, speak to their hearts. And if right now the Lord is speaking to your heart and showing your need to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. 
I, I want you to listen very, very carefully. Our service is about to come to a conclusion. And our pastors are going to be on either side of the, the worship center, right, right up here at the front, right up by the doors. And while everybody is, is going out the back, why don't you just stick around for just a minute? Why don't you come up to one of the pastors and say, wow, I, I need to talk to someone about all of this. And we'll have somebody that will seek to answer any questions that you have, to be able to point you into the Word of God to show you exactly how the Bible says that a person comes into a relationship with God that is apart from your good works, apart from your baptism, apart from your church or church membership, this church or any church. It, it can happen for you today. But if God is speaking to your heart, oh, for God's sake and for your sake, please don't leave this room today until you've called upon the name of the Lord to save you or at least until you've talked to someone about what that means. Oh, God, again, I pray that you would give these people the courage to, to talk to someone today before they leave. And oh, God, for those of us that do know you, May this put an urgency inside of us. May we, may we really see, not just with the hearing of the ears, but help us to really understand that most of the people that we associate with right here in Tuscross County and, and Stark County and other counties that are represented here, most of the people that we see every single day and rub shoulders with are people who will enter this turbulent period of time. And oh God, may we be used. Open doors for us to be able to reach these people while there is still time. We ask in Jesus' name.